Good morning, Rogers Park. My name is Brian Cordova. I'm a partner here at Park, and it's my privilege this morning to read uh, the word for today's service. Uh, today we'll be reading out of Exodus 32, and if you're using one of the house Bibles today, we're on page 41 at the bottom right corner. Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory, or the sound of cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the front foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with the fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a sin upon them? And Aaron said, 
Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. When Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people, because they had made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Thanks, brother. Thanks, Brian, for reading. Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Lee Grander. I serve as a uh, pastoral resident here at Park, and it's my joy to bring the word uh, this morning to preach. Uh, before we begin, though, would you please join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we've come here today to meet with you, to hear from you, to humble ourselves and come to the gathering of your body that would worship you together. We would gather around your word and we would receive it to hear who you are and what you say of us. God, I pray in our time that you would reveal more of yourself, that you would show us your character as a merciful God, a God who is with his people. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. This morning we're continuing in Exodus, and if you've been here with us for the last couple of months, you've probably remembered this, this phrase that's been said. The story of Exodus is one of God making for himself a people, a people who are set apart to be light, to be a kingdom of priests to the surrounding nations that Israel is amongst. Through these people, God was going to reveal himself to the surrounding nations, and so far, what we've seen is God has freed Israel from the Egyptian slavery. God has been leading his people through the wilderness, and there's a destination set for the promised land. 
And most recently, we've been camping out along with the Israelites while Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments from God, the Mosaic Law, and the instructions for the construction of the tabernacle. Today, after many instructions, we get back to a story. But the story is one of rebellion. Rebellion from the treasure of Israel, which is God himself. I've started to dabble in a little bit of jazz music, and maybe you've heard of this, this artist called Nat King Cole. In his famous 1959 song, My Heart's Treasure, he says this about his heart's treasure. He says that earthly riches cannot compare. My heart's treasure will always be the love that you gave to me. You see, God is love, and you see he's been pouring out this love to his people, saving them, giving them spoils, spoils of the Egyptians, protecting them, providing for them, and making a way for a holy God to dwell with a sinfully unclean people. God is truly the treasure of Israel's heart. But in our passage that was just read, rather than clinging to the treasure, Israel has fallen for a lesser thing. They've lacked trust. They've been impatient. Their desire to worship something in light of them feeling like God wasn't with them has led them into a trap, one that they've created. Something that looked so good but would only bring destruction. This morning, the big idea is cling to the treasure. Don't fall for the trap. Firstly, in the text, we see the trap and its lure. Idolatry is a trap. So what's idolatry? Well, if you look with me in verses 1 to 6, you'll see that the Israelites have grown tired and impatient. And Moses is long stay on that mountain. Remember, he's up there for 40 days. It's a long time. And Israel has begun to not trust that God was still with them. And so Aaron, who was meant to be the priest of the people, fashioned for them this golden calf something made by man. And the people said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Aaron says, we're going to worship Yahweh the next day. And the Israelites made burnt offerings and peace offerings to this golden calf or bull. They've rebelled against God, trading the real God for a fake. This is idolatry. But idolatry is more than just worshiping a golden calf or an image. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, helps us understand what idolatry is as he explains what an idol is. He says it's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more so than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I just had that, then I'd feel like my life had meaning. I'd know I have some sort of value, and I'd feel significant and secure. Idolatry is simply the worship of idols. If we take an honest look at what's going on in this passage and how the people are responding to idolatry, we see two things. First, we see they don't think it's a big deal. And second, they deny it when they're confronted. Remember, Aaron was asked by God to take care of the people. And when the people who, they were, who Aaron was meant to lead to God came to him, he said, oh, make us gods 
so that they can go before us. He goes, well, let me show you this fake God. Saying, all right, well, just give me your jewelry, I guess. In the moment, it doesn't seem like Aaron thinks it's a big deal. You know, not a big deal to take the spoils that the Egyptians had just been given. God literally took the Egyptian spoil and gave it to Israel. And then Israel's like, okay, I've got the, the spoil of the Egyptians. I'm going to make a golden calf and really offend God with this thing. Not a big deal. And the other thing is no claim for personal responsibility, denial. When Moses comes down that mountain, he says to Aaron in verse 21, what did, what did this people do that, have, that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron says, you know, the people, they're set on evil. It's the people. He's saying it was, it was their fault. And it shouldn't really be a surprise because it's been the pattern of mankind. It's the pattern of us that when we're blamed for something, we blame it on others. When confronted, we deny idolatry. And our, our denial is often foolish. Right after Moses confronts Aaron, Aaron's like, yeah, I, I threw the stuff in the fire. And you're like, I popped a calf. Like it just kind of showed up. It's just, it's just here. I don't know, what would you do with it? It's foolish. And it's not true. Aaron just fashioned the calf. We've just read it. He made it. But we're still lured into this idolatry. We're still, we're still pulled into it. And why? Because again, we think in our minds, in disobedience to God, in our sinful nature, there is something with a promise a promise of security, success, meaning, or value that we could obtain and call it ours. In our minds, we say, if I could just get what I want, if I could just have what my heart is truly longing for, then I'd be good. And this is where idolatry happens. We look and we say, the job, it would make me feel secure. If I owned something, like an apartment or a house. You know, I'd feel like a success. If we just had more kids, I might have more meaning in my life because there'd be more stuff to do, you know? If I had a romantic relationship or got married, I would feel secure and no longer lonely. If we just had, you know, a better position at work, I'd feel like a success. Or if I became some, part of something bigger than myself, then I could truly ascribe meaning, like, you know, being a super fan of a sports team, as long as they win. We feel the lure and believe that if only we had that thing, or that idea, that it would satisfy the longing of my heart. And we end up saying this, it's not that big of a deal. You know, if I put my focus on those things, even if it means not spending time with God, you know, or reading his word. When confronted about idolatry, we, we deny personal responsibility and say, yeah, you know, it's, just, it's the world that we live in. You know, money is important. Status is important. It's not my fault. It's just what I've got to do. I've got to do. I've got to do. And so we do push God further aside. And then it makes us 
say foolish things, right? Like, we've all heard people say that my job changed my life until he got let go. Or I feel at home finally knowing this place is mine until your pipes burst and your home floods. Feel like, man, this, this relationship, this girlfriend or boyfriend has saved me from loneliness. This wife of mine has saved me from loneliness. Until you feel worse because you're still alone in that relationship or your wife's got, you know, your child's needs. And so then you feel left alone. You know what I mean? It, it seems so good, so attainable. And then when you get it, things still go wrong. Forgive me for being blunt, but these things that we say when we're in idolatry are foolish. Jobs don't change us. They change our circumstances. And if anything, they, they just reveal our character. We remain the same. Spouses don't free you from loneliness, either does a romantic relationship. Only God can be with you at every second of every minute, of every hour of the day. Idolatry is a trap. It lures you in with these great promises and lets you down. And unfortunately, it keeps getting worse because God's got a response. In the text, the Israelites switch out this real thing, God, for a fake thing, the golden calf. And it provokes God's righteous wrath. We've just seen the trap and its allure, and now we see the trap and its sting. When we worship an idol, we participate in idolatry. God's response is wrath, destruction, and death. In the text, Moses is up on the mountain when the people of Israel begin to worship this idol. And as we remember, God sees, he hears, and he knows his people. And he says to Moses, let me alone that I may have my wrath burn hot against them. And I may consume them in order that I, may, I might make a great nation out of you. It's like the Steven Spielberg 1981 movie. If anyone's an Indiana Jones fan, the Raiders of the Lost Ark. If you haven't seen it, let me describe the climactic point. Jones goes down into this cave. There's this precious thing on the pedestal. And Jones goes, man, if I could just switch out the real thing and take it for myself, I could just put this fake thing there and no one's really going to notice. Right? So he's, he's switching out the real thing for a fake thing, the bag of sand, and he goes... He goes, I could, I could do this. I could do it. And no one would notice. And so in the climactic point, he goes ahead and he, and he switches it, right? And for a moment, everything seems fine. He kind of looks back with a grin and he's like, I, I did it. For a moment, it was like he had just done something. He had just overcome the creator of this whole thing. Like he beat it. And then all of a sudden, the whole room collapses. The darts shoot out of the walls. And then there's this huge boulder that's chasing after Indiana Jones as he runs away. The only difference in Exodus 32, and for those of us who literally switch out God and put a fake thing on our pedestal, 
is that there's no escape. There's wrath coming. So what does Moses do? He implores God. He says, God, you, you just brought them out of Egypt. Think of your reputation amongst the Egyptians. Remember your promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Moses stood in between God and his people, and God relented. Remember this, we're coming back to it. And yet God's relenting from wrath, the destruction and death demanded for Israel's idolatry, sin, and rebellion. The relenting from wrath was momentary. As it was about to be carried out by Moses when he saw the evil Israel had committed, right? Verse 28, on that day, 3,000 men of the people fell. They died. So here's the question that comes up when we read chapter 32, especially in this section of 25, verses 25 to 29. Why did God want to consume all the people and allow Moses then to effectively kill the 3,000? Short answer is because God is not indifferent to sin, but he hates it. If God was indifferent to sin, he wouldn't be good at all. Like imagine this, if a, if a woman who just got married to a man and right in front of the man's face cheated on him. Like right after they got married on their honeymoon. It would be insane if the man just sat there and was like, meh. Right? Like he'd have to do something about it. He'd be angry. It's like what happened just a few chapters ago in Exodus. God said to Israel, hey, I'm going to be your God in covenant relationship. Israel would be his people in covenant relationship. And a few chapters later, here in, verse 30, in chapter 32, God's right there on the mountain, and Israel commits adultery. He, they cheat on God on their honeymoon. They begin to worship that golden calf. You guys, if, if God was just like, eh, this is what it is. He couldn't be good at all. You can't watch someone you love cheat on you and not respond in anger. God has every right to break the covenant at this point. He's got every right to bring punishment for the egregious sin that has just been committed against him. And while humanly we don't think idolatry and sin is a big deal, God certainly does. He says it's a huge deal that he literally wants to obliterate Why? Not because he's an angry God all the time, but because he's making for himself a people, a people to be set apart, a holy people that would be light to a kingdom of priests, to the surrounding nations that Israel is amongst. He would reveal himself through these people. To reveal himself through a people. And we've got sin, which is a destruction of everything good and perfect and beautiful that God has created and goes against everything God is for and everything God is. Of course he's right to bring wrath and consume sin and sinners because he he wants to make for himself a holy people. He wants us to be like him, not against him. 
Jump back with me in verse 19 and look at how Moses responds. He actually sees it the same way that God does. And I think we need to as well. Moses is the bystander to this adultery. He's avoided the trap by being with God. And he comes down this mountain to the horrible sight. So horrible that he throws down the tablets. Moses would have seen this people who had cheated on a perfect God. A God who had done nothing but pour out his love for his people, saving them from Egypt when they were in slavery, avenging their oppressors. He fed them when they were hungry and gave them drink when they were thirsty. He revealed his righteousness, his holiness, his graciousness, his mercifulness, his integrity and love through his law. And even then continued to be with his people. He was present. They were undeserving of a love like that. What Moses was seeing was perfection itself being rebelled against. Moses saw the most valuable treasure in all the universe being tossed aside for an image of a beast. While all of Israel deserved God's wrath, it is curious that only 3,000 fell that day. It was similar to God relenting earlier because here God relents from that total destruction against those who had sinned against him. But the judgment of their sin was not removed. There was still judgment coming. And the question for the Israelites, the most important question is what or who could resolve God's wrath permanently? This brings us to the liberator of the trapped Who could do it? Who could liberate those who had fallen into the trap of idolatry? Moses in verse 30, he recognizes that judgment is still coming because the people are still in sin. God's word says, the next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin and now I will go up to the Lord and perhaps I can make the atonement for your sin. Moses is, Moses is saying, maybe I could get rid of, could make amends for, could, you know, dissolve the sin that you have and the wrath that was coming. I think a simple way to under, understand atonement, what Moses was saying, perhaps I can do, is he was saying, perhaps I can make a way for humanity to come back into harm, a harm come back into a harmonious relationship with God. It appears good, right, for Israel. They're like, yes, someone is going to go stand in between God and the sinful people, us. Moses gets up to the mountain, and he says, as we've heard, now if you will forgive their sin, if you would forgive their sin, look what he says next. But if not, Please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses didn't try to minimize the people's sin. But he saw it as so terrible that he linked his appeal for the forgiveness of Israel's sin to an offer to lose his own eternal life if the people's sin could not be forgiven. It's a selfless act. Perhaps... 
Moses would be able to stand in the gap for the people. But God said no. <laughs> like, God said no. He said, whoever sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. He's like, even playing field, no partiality, like no hierarchy of sin, but it's the same. Sin brings the wrath of God. He goes on to say, nevertheless, in the day when I do visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made a calf, the one that Aaron had made, being like, Aaron, that was still your fault. But don't miss this. Like, this is how it ends. God says no. He does in his mercy, though, withhold a final judgment for some future day. He does warn the Israelites by treating them like the Egyptians, sending a plague of warning because the Israels are acting like them in their worship of God. But there's this lingering question. Who could make atonement for the sin of Israel? Who could stand between man and God to liberate them from the trap of idolatry, sin, and the sting of God's wrath? You guys, the the reason that we're talking about this story this morning is because we are like the Israelites. We are sinners who have fallen for the trap of idolatry, things that we've created, we've begun to worship, and we need someone to liberate us from that trap. Otherwise, we're stuck. We need liberation from the things we've assigned value to and started to worship. It's destroying us. Without a liberator, we will ultimately face God's wrath. But there is a testimony that we have received from God that was passed down from our church fathers that said, Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, and the third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is now seated high at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. This is the one, Jesus Christ, who could ever liberate us from the trap of idolatry and sin, liberate us from the destruction that is coming to all because we have created an idol. We've thought, man, God isn't with us. We've got to find something else. And it's brought destruction We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And you see, Moses would love to be the liberator. But in the scriptures, he serves as a pointer to the greater Moses, who would be able to atone for the sin of a rebellious people. 2,000 years ago, Jesus walked in perfect obedience to the Father and like Moses went up a mountain carrying the weight of a sinful people's pending righteous judgment from God. Jesus was beaten and crucified and as he perfectly stood between God and man taking on himself on the cross the wrath of God towards sin for all people of all time. 
He provided an atonement through his blood, making a way for mankind to be brought back into a a harmonious relationship with our creator, our holy, and our good God. As the scriptures say, and we see in the Apostles' Creed, on the third day he rose from the grave, defeating Satan's sin and death, and its cling on us, displaying in himself the perfect revelation of God who was with us, who alone is our treasure, who alone deserves worship, who alone deserves trust, who alone provides security, who alone gives our life meaning and calls us a success because we are his and he is ours. There is no circumstance that could ever change that reality that when we put faith in Jesus Christ, we're forever united with him. We stand in his righteousness. We experience the forgiveness of sin. He is our truest treasure and only in him can we be liberated from the trap of idolatry. In the glory of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, it is shouting to a watching world, replace your calf with the crucified and risen Christ. Redirect your worship to the treasure in whom you will find your heart's deepest longing. To be with me forever. As we close, we we ought to have one of two responses. Firstly, we should worship Jesus alone, for he is worthy and he's with us. Following Jesus and worshiping him means that we are called, as in a marriage covenant, to commit to one, forsaking all else. You guys, we we can't follow Jesus and continue to worship the things of the world. Following Jesus isn't like a one-time commitment where we say, you know, I've I've done it, now we're good. Like marriage isn't a one-time commitment. We don't seal it on our wedding day and then, you know, everything's easy and you don't have to try. Can I get an amen? It's difficult. It's hard. But she's worth it. It's a daily commitment to love one and forsake all others. God gives us his Holy Spirit as a helper, as a a way to say, I am with you forever. I am here. I am present. You don't have to go find someone else to worship. I'm with you now. And has strength to worship and to endure with Jesus alone, forsaking all others. Let me encourage us to consider again that idolatry and sin is a really big deal to God. Let's not spend our lives making excuses of why it's okay to orient our lives around anything other than Jesus. Let's call idolatry what it is. It's a trap. It's foolish. It's sinful. Rather, let's spend our lives worshiping the God who is with us. 
and testifying to the good news of Jesus Christ, which is an invitation for others to be with him. This worship of Jesus ought to compel us to share with others, to perhaps go across the world to people and places who have never heard this good news because it's worthy of much celebration. Those old things we thought could satisfy us will always let us down. But I promise, and God's word promises, Jesus will never let you down. He will never forsake you. He will never leave you, but he will be with you. Trust in Jesus. Finally, some of us in the room are probably feeling some guilt and shame for spending years of orienting our lives around other things than Christ. Some of us in the room need to run into the arms of God, run into his arms, his loving arms in repentance, forsaking what was previous for what is new in Christ. And run, run with haste because you can stand confidently you can stand confidently in that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross has taken the guilt and the shame. It has taken the lure, the trap, and the sting of idolatry. That you may have someone to be with and to worship. He will never leave you. He will never let you down. You can stand today and worship clinging to the one. While we say our sins, they are many. The one whose mercy was more. In our lives, there are always going to be a trap. But there, are, there is a treasure to cling to. His name is Jesus. And he is with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you are a God who is with your people, distinguishes us from anyone else. And God, we have confidence that you are close. God, we bless you that you have sent Christ as a revelation of you. You've sent the Spirit as a constant reminder you are with us. God, help us to continue to trust you and to worship you. You are a merciful God. You are a God present with his people. God, and in you, we find our heart's deepest longing, fulfilled, satisfied, we pray in Jesus' name.